Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and it is Wednesday the 20th of May. How... Oh, in the studio we have Rob. Jess. And I'd win. Hey. Hello. <laughs> How are we all? Good. How this are week, you? This week's been good. Like, look at all the sunshine we're getting. Oh, yeah. so nice. I've been going on lots of morning walks. It's been great. Um, yeah, no, a lot of morning, lot of morning walks. It's been just generally nice to have a bit of sunshine, but also like a lot of rain. So, like, I don't know. I feel like the weather system's doing its thing, and we just kind of gotta conform to it as always, <laughs> as, <Yeah>. as Melburnians. <laughs> You know, I went for a hike on the weekend, getting getting some fresh air. So that was nice. Getting some uh, some exercise. Where did you Where did you go? Out of interest, we went to Mount Tolbrook. Uh, so it's a few hours out of Melbourne, um, but we were trying to find somewhere that was hopefully not having too many crowds, so we could keep our, our physical distancing, um, and also just like feel like we're in nature, back to roots a little bit more. Um, so that was really lovely. Nice to sort of yeah. Reconnect with that the soil is. a little bit more. Yeah, I definitely feel like I definitely feel like there's been a greater appreciation for nature and just kind of getting out there and getting physical. It's it's, it's good. It's good. People realize how much they miss and actually need it, including myself. Mm. Well, yeah. Speaking of which, now that um restrictions are starting to be eased, it's amazing to see like how many people are like like when you see another person that you know for the first time in a few months, you're just like, oh, human human contact, like not even touching, but like. <laughs> what is this crazy thing of being, you know, in another person's proximity? It's, it's really yeah. been quite fascinating for me about like how much we need connection in mm. that way. Even yeah. if it's going for a, you know, a bit of exercise with one of your friends while maintaining social distancing and all that. <laughs> the other thing I've noticed in terms of like things that are sort of like you notice more is the sense of hygiene. Like I really acutely notice every time I'm about to have a meal, it's ingrained into my brain of like, if I haven't washed my hands, my hands feel dirty. Like it's because you've always been told to wash your hands. Now I'm so attuned to the fact that I have to wash my hands every time I eat or like every time I've gone outside. And that's really interesting. And I wonder whether we're now going to see like reduced spread of other sort of influenzas or colds because we're more ingrained to have to maintain that level of hygiene because of this period. But yeah, who knows? Yeah, I agree. I used to think I was a, complete germaphobe but now i think it's just the norm (laughs) (laughs) so i feel feel better because everyone's joining me now um but yeah no i i wonder that too like is this going to be the lessening of influenza because in the future but also then the rise of these global pandemics could be continued as science has shown but um yeah with the hygiene it's really interesting because everybody is it's like a big team effort um with uh trying to stay clean and hygienic yeah so yeah 
it's interesting because I am a germaphobe, um, but uh, no, I'm not a germaphobe, sorry. I'm not a germaphobe at all. I'm the sort of kid who used to eat dirt. So <laughs> it's been actually really hard for me to get into this habit of washing hands and stuff like that. Like I, I, I do, but it, it's just been a really, um, really difficult thing for me to figure, figure out. And I suppose I was talking to someone the other day and they're going, you know, we'll never get back to a normal society. And I, I reckon we will. But I do think we'll have aspects of what medical professionals have been telling us for years, which is wash your hands more, you filthy animal. Um, and it's been quite a lot of fun also looking at like different soaps you can make and stuff like that. So I've been getting really into that, um, into different like uh, soaps. We recently pioneered trying to make um, this thing called spongy soap, which is basically just corn flour and different uh, soap liquids mixed together. But you make like this really fun squidgy soap for kids. So I don't know. It's, 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 it's been rather interesting having to change mindsets. And I, I think that will be something that outlasts this. I think so. I think so. Um, now that we've all actually seen the impact of what hand washing and those sort of basic hygiene things can have, mm. it is so invisible. Um, so, yeah, it really has proven that point. Um, moving on to the, <laughs> onto the show for the week, what do we, what, Jess, what do you have lined up for us? Yeah, so we've actually got a very interesting interview with um, Dr. Sue Wareham, who is the Director of Medical Association of the Prevention of War, with Annette Brownlee, who's the chairperson at IPAN, the Independent and Peaceful Australian Network. Um, they've joined me to talk about um, the national statement that IPAN published, calling on the government to stop investing in unjust US-led wars and to instead invest in the health and safety of its own people as a priority. Um, they're calling on the Australian government to stop funneling billions of dollars into offensive weapons. Um, this, another really interesting thing um, is that, that we spoke about was that they're also launching a national public inquiry into the cost and consequence of the US um, with Australia, which has never been done before, other than with DFAT. Um, so that's a, it's a very interesting uh, interview that we had. Uh-huh. Um, I also um, had a chat to Alice, um, who was a tree sitter for the first two days um, at Pat's Corner a few weeks ago. Um, Big Pat's Creek and Warburton locals have attempted to engage with the environment. Um, Minister Lily D'Ambrosio for months to express their concerns about the logging of um, a number of places close to the town, um, which has so far not gotten so too far, um, but we'll have a chat with her to see how they're going there. Great. Yeah, so I um I will be speaking with James Lesh. So he's a heritage uh, and architecture historian. And so we're speaking about obviously the the passing of Jack Mundy and the legacy that he's had. Um, but also speaking about how we can continue that legacy moving forwards into the twenty first century with how we think about heritage, which also leads into our trans thoughts, which we'll be delving into a bit later today. Um, and I wouldn't, you've got some activism at the margins. Yeah, we'll have some activism at the margins today. Um, I've, I've got a few like good ones, so I'm going to leave it as a bit of a surprise. And I suppose after we listen to Jess's and, you know, Rob, your, your interesting stuff, we might, we'll, we'll see who we end up with. Um, so yeah, that, I think we're coming up to the end of my activism at the margins, like conference material. So I mean, it's been a wonderful, it's been a wonderful selection of speeches and different ranging of ideas. So yeah, that, that'll be what concludes our show, I imagine. Yeah, great. Well, pretty, pretty packed show. Um, but mm. before jumping in, we'll have some alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty 
Okay, so on alternative news this week, the Indonesian government has recently announced that it will consider investigating into the 1965 anti-communist purge, which killed hundreds of thousands under the rule of leader Suharto. This marks an interesting point in the Indonesian government's ministry. Indonesia, of course, like Australia, has a terrible track record at addressing past atrocities. In fact, according to Amnesty International, at least 100,000 West Papuans have been killed since the Indonesian takeover of West Papua in 1960s, with killings peaking in the 1970s. More recent attacks include September last year, when as many as 41 West Papuans were killed with clashes with jihadi-inspired militia. There's continued to be clashes with West Papua National and Indonesian security forces, with protests and renewed media attention bringing greater light to the issue. The conversation and article which I reference this news story from has actually embarked on a project to map out the violence that has occurred within this region of West Papua under Indonesian occupation. Indonesia has also recently gained a seat on the Human Rights Council, so potentially this might prompt greater security of human rights within their state. However, as ministers within Indonesia who have been recently appointed are actually accused of human rights abuses themselves, this makes this change in heart hard to see. Of course, this subject will require greater media attention, more conversations around the issue, and a platforming of advocates within Australia and West Papua. It's also important to note that in Australia, in 2006, we signed the Lombok Treaty, which assured Jakarta it would respect the sovereignty of the Indonesian state and not support separatist movements as has defined the West Papuans. We, definitely here in this country, have a role to play in pushing our government to support West Papua in their fight for independence. The map which I mentioned and more information on the subject can be found in our rundown and I will include the link to the article. Then, switching over to Australian unions, the National Tertiary Education Union has ruffled a few feathers with its agreement with universities to cut up to 15% of salary pay in order to avoid the loss of jobs. The university sector, which at this point has been gorged through decades of funding cuts and has substituted most of its money funding through international students, means that it's no real surprise that this institution has been pretty hard hit by COVID-19, especially after it was announced earlier that JobKeeper would not be applied within this sector. This agreement remains contentious. It is uncertain how many universities are likely to sign up. Institutions like the ACU, Australian Catholic University, have already rejected it. It also holds fears for casual workers, which make up 70% of university staff. Casual and contract academics are the most vulnerable to imminent job losses. Some universities, such as the University of Tasmania, have had to reduce the number of courses offered in 2021 to recoup funding. Other universities have had to scale back spending, for example, on major construction works. 
RMIT and Latrobe have already let go of hundreds of non-essential casual staff. We will have to keep an eye on this process to make sure it is done transparently and with integrity to workers. And you can follow the story more on Stick Together and Saturday's morning breakfast show. And finally, switching over to Queensland now, the Youth Climate Coalition, Youth Verdict, have announced that they will be taking Clive Palmer's Waratah coal to court. They are objecting to the mine on the basis of the impact climate change has on human rights. And it's very exciting to see yet another climate change spurred legal action. So we'll be linking that also within today's rundown. Finally, I'd like to just draw attention to the action that happened on Saturday this weekend, which was run by the Refugee Action Collective. And it was protesting the holding of asylum seekers and refugees within the Mantra Hotel in Preston. Uh, Within this hotel confinement, refugees are held up to 24 sorry up to 23 hours in closed quarters where they are suffering from health support severe poor health The Refugee Action Coalition has also raised the fact that COVID-19 leaves refugees and asylum seekers on offshore and onshore detention centres at a greater risk of contracting COVID-19 and are calling for immediate government action. You've probably seen some of their uh, different protests recently within the past few weeks. We've had drive-bys, we've had mass signs, as well as stage protests with individuals practising social distancing rules, of course. So we'll also link to the Facebook page for that group and hopefully see more protests and maybe a couple of interviews in the coming weeks. That's all from me this week for Alternative News. And of course, uh, just with the news I did raise this week, remember that we have some fantastic union shows and shows dedicated to West Papuan uh, independence on 3CR. So definitely tune in for those. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live.
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. If you're wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry and depression or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111500. That's 1300 111500. Wellways supports 3CR. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on queeraidmelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook. COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and as many of you will be aware, Jack Mundy who was a pioneer in heritage conservation, recently passed away. And so in reflection of his ongoing influence, today on the show we have James Lesh to discuss Jack's legacy and how we can continue his work in the 21st century. James is a researcher in urban history and heritage conservation and is based at the University of Melbourne in the Australian Centre for Architectural History, Urban and Cultural Heritage. James, welcome to the show. Hi, Rob. So... Before we speak on Jack's legacy and his impact on heritage preservation, I wanted to ask to you, why do you believe heritage is so important to the Australian urban form? I think heritage contributes a, a range of, of benefits to the, to the urban environment. So heritage places in our, in our streets uh, offer us a, a greater sense of variety. We can see this kind of what we call a palimpsest, a build up of various layers of the past through the different uh, periods and, and urban development which have occurred across it. Different scales, different architectural styles, different street uh, and area layouts, different parks and gardens, monuments and so forth. I think that the heritage also gives us a, a sense of place and a sense of belonging as a community where we can walk around and feel that this, these areas that are, that, are, that are familiar to us 
uh, and have a have a kind of value and benefit in terms of in terms of comfort, uh, in terms of involvement and relationships with others when we walk around and we point at, at, at a tree or or so on. I think particularly at the moment, as we're all getting to know our neighbourhoods and local streets and blocks uh, far better than we have in the past. Mm. I think the third and maybe the most important at the moment is this question of sustainability amid the climate emergency, and it's inherent. Uh, with, with heritage, if we, we're keeping places rather than knocking them down, that just has a clear environmental benefit as well. Mm. And I think it's it's this really lovely idea, as you say, it's kind of like this this patchwork of different moments in time kind of all weave together. And that's kind of what heritage is doing. It's preserving these different eras and what they reflected of that time. So moving on to Jack's work. So what is the history behind the first green ban? What was the, the context of government policy and planning that led to its development? Sure. So to, to work with the, the and think about the first green ban, we have to go up to Sydney uh, and uh, where, where, they, where they all began, where Jack Mundy was involved in the Builder, Builders Labourers Federation Union, the BLF. Uh, and he was responding to the change which had occurred in the post-war period in Melbourne, in Sydney, in, in other cities as well, where there was a huge amount of demolition work uh, going on. There was a valuing of heritage, but only in a very kind of narrow way. We weren't going to knock down the shrine, we weren't going to knock down Parliament in, in Melbourne. But if it came to a kind of really nice 19th century building on Collins Street, or it came to an inner suburb like Carlton or Parkfield, there was very little appreciation of the, those kinds of heritage environments. And so developers and, and the government as well would go in and demolish and rebuild uh, and rebuild and rebuild. And it got to a kind of a, a breaking point in the economic boom of the of the, the long boom in the post-war period of the kind of the 60s, where all this kind of comprehensive renewal for the social housing flats that we know in Melbourne, where these freeways are being put through suburbs in Melbourne and Sydney, where people are kind of starting to say, well, enough is enough. And there was this backlash against the form of architecture, the form of planning. Uh, and that and that backlash was a was a widespread protest movement involving the coming together of resident groups, involving the coming together of, of church of church groups, uh, the coming together also of uh, of the of the union movement, uh, of, of civil society as well, saying enough is enough. Uh, and so that, that was the context in which the, the Green Ban was born. So the first actual Green Ban itself uh, it was called a black ban, uh, and that was a, a tool, direct action tool used by the union movement in the, um, had a longer history when union members would refuse to work on a site and they would down their tools for paying conditions in, in the interests of, of, the, of the workers. Uh, and so the first green ban was actually a black ban, uh, and it was applied in a suburb in Sydney uh, called Par the Parramatta River in an area called Kelly's Bush. And there was a resident group there, a, a, a group of women, middle-class women, uh, and they called themselves the Battlers for, for Kelly's Bush. And they had a meeting with Jack Mundy and um, Jack, and they had this, these kind of conversations. And then out of that, that meeting and conversation, Mundy goes back to the, to the union and back to his members and he says, we should have a social conscious, a consciousness uh, broader than our own immediate uh, interests as workers. And, the, and it was voted on and the members of the union agreed. And so they refused to, to work on that uh, area, uh, the, the Kelly's Bush. And so that from that, that was the first black ban, green ban. And then over the next couple of years, the, tool, the tools were down in a range of places uh, in, in, in Sydney and in Melbourne as well from that moment. Do we know for Jack why in particular he was particularly impassioned by this topic? Were there certain factors in his life or experiences that led him to really campaign and push for these green and black 
bans. His, his interest was in democratising the labour movement. So there had been a view, view in the union movement that they weren't always necessarily, the leadership and tra trades hall weren't necessarily always acting in interests of members, um, that there were people in trades hall who'd been, who'd been there for decades and were kind of, in a sense, embezzling themselves rather than acting in the interest of workers. And when Jack Mundy comes in, and I think around 1967, uh, he says, no, we're going to start to do things differently. And so it was this kind of democratic uh, zeal which he had, but also this incredibly strong social consciousness as well, and the belief the union movement could uh, could achieve bigger and, and, and greater kind of social purpose as well. And so I guess following, I guess with those initiative uh, sort of intentions and with the first few green bands, how did his influence start to grow throughout the 1970s? Did he start to see more people within the union networks become involved in the green bands as well? Yeah, so it's an important context that the that rates of, uni of unionisation at that time were incredibly high. And so what that meant was if you applied a green ban or a black ban uh, to a site, it stuck and there would be nobody in effect who would who would go and work there. I mean, the, the union terms are scab um, if you went and worked there, but in effect, the, the there was not an opportunity even to kind of bring in scab labour and, and there would be um, the unions and, and, the, and the groups, particularly in places like the Rocks, would actually surround building sites to prevent people from getting, getting into them in Sydney. Um, and that led to a number of arrests as well as developers and property owners tried to fight back, I suppose, often with um, the assistance of the police and with the assistance of conservative politicians who didn't like this this form of um, advocacy. And I guess in terms of today's sort of uh, the context, you don't you don't ever hear the terms green bands anymore. So why did it start to fade out? How did these shifts start to occur? What, what ends up happening is uh, the green bands get applied to a variety of, of, of places across uh, suburbs and individual, individual lots and properties. So in, in Melbourne, if we, you can kind of read a list of, of places which were subject to, to green bands um, from the local union movement here, places that could potentially not be with us today, like the City Baths or the Queen Victoria Market, um, the Gothic Bank, which is where the ANZ is on Collins Street Region Theatre, Windsor Hotel, Princess Theatre, the Col where the Rialto Towers is today around Collins Street, Tasma Terrace, um, Carlton, Parkville, Fitzroy. So it got to a point where all those, all those places the, the immediate threat of their development uh, had started to dissipate. And that happens in the early 70s because there's an economic crisis uh, with, the, uh, with the, oil, uh, the oil crisis. Um, Whitlam comes to power expecting that the long boom will continue and it, and it doesn't. And so eventually it's, a, it's kind of the economy uh, fades, the developer, the money fades. There's no, the threats kind of go away. So it kind of is this, this almost this... Um, feeling like the contemporary political, it's like this bridge over this moment in time. Mm -hmm. and, and by the time we get to the other end, well, the, uh, they're no longer necessary anymore, the green bands. And the reason they're no longer necessary is because governments at all levels, uh, starting in Victoria in 1974, legislate for heritage projections, both for individual buildings and for areas. And so all those places get absorbed into the new heritage system that comes out at the moment. I guess touching more on the way that heritage is managed today, have we regressed to a more conservative hands-off approach to heritage or has it matured over time, would you say? So this, the system itself, the governance system we have for heritage has continued to evolve since that time, since the 70s. Uh, and, the, and the approaches taken have very much evolved. Uh, in some ways, the system is very similar to what was set up then. 
through the listing system, for example, the planning system that gets upgraded in the 80s for area-based protection. In terms of the, the culture around it, it's almost as if in some ways there isn't that, that huge social movement anymore around heritage, at least not in, in the way of that time. Uh, and I think there's been a kind of change, a, a changing attitude towards it as well. But it, I think any, any time that there's been work done thinking about and considering and asking people, are you happy to have heritage protections in the kind of a abstract sense? I think the community kind of accepts that uh, as, a, as a given these days when perhaps in an earlier time they wouldn't have. Mm. The other thing I find really interesting reflecting on particularly Jack Mundy's work um, is that the, the green bands were a very unique uh, moment in time and were a product of a unique moment in time. They sort of captured this 1970s democratic spirit and applied this energy to questioning the poor urban development and heritage methods that you outlined earlier. And so as you write in your article in the conversation, this moment really established people to feel empowered and to start to claim their right to heritage in their own city. And so reflecting on the kind of urban paradigm that we currently exist within and the evolved governance and characteristics since the 1970s, what kind of actions can we take today to equally experience that feeling of empowerment in relation to heritage today? I think that it almost leads back to one of the things that we started talking about around this question of sustainability and the, and the environment and, and in, the, in the urban professions, but also more broadly saying, what's wrong with what we currently have? How can we upgrade it and modernize it? The environments that we're working in, that, we, that we're living in, that we love and, and really in, uh, have a strong impression on us. How can we keep those into the future? How can we have, how can we have the, a, a sense of continuity in our urban environments? And I think that comes out of that moment in particular. I think the, this idea that there's a, a social justice and community dimension to heritage and, it, and, and that community dimension should be at the heart of conversations around heritage. I think that's the other key thing which comes out of it. Uh, and I think in terms of that community dimension, that social justice dimension, it's when community groups still get together today uh, in, in Melbourne, it's, it's drawing on the best of, that, of those ideas uh, from that time. And so I'm, I'm talking about uh, debates around, for example, the Windsor Hotel or uh, the Palace Theatre Metro nightclub, which saw a huge outpouring and, 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 uh, and one which is close to me because I was a little bit involved in it, was, is the debates over Federation Square as well, where we saw tens of thousands of people come out and say public space is important to us. And one of the reasons for that is because it's public space is an important heritage to us and therefore we can heritage list it within the within the conventional system for its importance to us as a public as a public gathering space, um, it, it, which which should remain public and not corporatized by a large multinational company. And so it was, I think, through, through sites like that, we see this, this spirit still there uh, in, its, in its contemporary form as well. And I think for me, that's very exciting as a, as a historian to see that happening today as well. Mm, absolutely. For people who are listening who want to get involved with some of these community groups that you mentioned, what are some, where should they start to look to get involved? I think the it kind of sounds a bit old fashioned in a way, but the National Trust uh, has a really a fantastic, uh, a really uh, a spiritful and really energetic uh, group of um, people who are advocating for a range of these issues. Uh, they've just announced, for example, their um, the, the tree of the year for those who are interested in Melbourne, which is pretty cool. And they have a blog called The Trust Advocate. So I check, check that out. Uh, 
there's other groups like Melbourne Heritage Action and others uh, on Facebook. The group I'm part of, Citizens for Melbourne, uh, and was part of the Federation Square campaign. We're up there. You can check that out as well. Uh, and there's a community on Twitter and so on, all talking about these issues all the time. Yeah, great. And finally, what do you find personally most memorable and motivating about Jack Mundy's legacy? I think it, for me, it's the idea that heritage is more than just about stopping things and stopping things from being from changing and from being developed. Rather, heritage is about a community claim to place and it's about a sustainability claim to place as well. Wonderful. Well, James, thanks very much for sharing your thoughts. Thanks, Rob. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. No.
Many of you will be familiar with 3CR's annual Radiothon fundraiser. It's when you, our listeners, literally keep the station going with your generous donations. It's a vibrant and busy time each June at the station and an all-in effort from our volunteers, staff and supporters. But in 2020, under the COVID-19 restrictions, we need to do things a little bit differently. So stay tuned for our June Station Appeal. It'll be online, on point, and be asking those of you who can to make a donation to keep 3CR alive. 3CR, your station in struggle and solidarity. Listen to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and now it's time for transport. And I was going to say on a side note, I love like this is so transport themed. Like I don't know if you've ever heard of the term numtot. Have you ever heard of the term numtot? No. Okay. It stands for New Urbanist Means for Transit Oriented Teens, um, and I, I identify <laughs> somewhat as a numtot. Um, mm. It's this great Facebook page that's been around for a few years, and it's just like bands <laughs> about transport. So I love that, like this whole segment is like transport related. It, it brings me joy every week. But anyway, <laughs> that that to the side. <laughs> um, before I jumped into this transport, which is going to be focusing on heritage, so following on from the interview I had with James just before, uh, I wanted to ask you both: Why do you think heritage and heritage protection of our buildings is important to an Australian context? I, I just, first of all, I think heritage in general is important because it's always a marker of history and therefore history is important for a number of reasons. But in an Australian context, I think it's an education into our past and remembering how we, be, we came to be. This includes moving forward from any dark pasts, <laughs> which is very important for us to remember to move forward. That's sort of what I think. I've got a bit of a love-hate relationship with it. Um, in one ways, I love some of the old buildings and some of the, I really do love the designs. Uh, and I think a lot of modern buildings are very ugly. <laughs> so it comes down to an aesthetic thing for me. I do think uh, Australia doesn't confront its history and we fall too easily into this kind of falling in love with heritage buildings without recognizing that they are structures of oppression, violence and colonization. So I have like this, love hate relationship where in one way I'd love to see more buildings built like that. But in the other ways, the, the echo, the historical echoes are violent and oppressive and racist. So it's a bit of a love hate relationship. I think it, I agree with you, Jess. I think it's important uh, as moments in time and that sort of reflections of the past and especially with cities. And I mean, you see this in, you know, European cities or, or cities all across the world, really 
like they evolve as history as culture evolves and as history evolves and so you can see all these different periods times phases and, and the i think that kind of creates you know where we are now so i think it's important to to have that living history because i think that connects you back to the history i just think in australia we have we've missed the element of confrontation or mm. acknowledging our history we we fall too much too easily into the trap of idolizing it mm. yeah well i think kind of like weaving your points together i think i win this point of like like yes sort of 1800 sort of colonial architecture it is you know there is an aesthetic quality to it but it does represent as you say power dynamics and invasion but i think what's interesting is that that doesn't have to be necessarily a celebration of that mm. like the presence of a building like that it's a memory of that was what that era was like for the negatives mm. of it and in some ways having that within the sort of urban fabric it hopefully reminds us that that's not what we should be doing we should be thinking about yeah. Uh, integrate we can, a wider range of I completely agree with that. I think that it should be there to remind us that yes, that that happened, but to move forward from it, we need it needs to be there so that we can remember and move forward from those negatives. I think we have to have a process of redefinition or not even redefinition, but like we have to confront our history to be able to get over that. So I don't think we're quite there yet. I do totally uh, believe in the idea of like getting there one day, Rob. <laughs> I just think at the moment because we like sovereignty, like indigenous sovereignty is not at the heart of our design. And not at the heart of our understanding or um you know our sovereignty like mm. the country yeah that, that can't be reflected like we, we haven't challenged that power dynamic enough yet to be able to have that better better more informed relationship or complex relationship it's kind yeah. of one of those things of to, to reach that point we have to go through a sort of real questioning of what the importance that what those buildings represent and then we kind of reassess the value of them in a sense it's reassessing yeah yeah, yeah. i guess then thinking about the importance of heritage both uh, pre-1788 and after 1788, are there any particular places in Australia or actually across the world that are important, have a, a, an importance to you in terms of heritage? To me, for them, more, it's more personal reasons for me. Like what we just had a conversation about, it's, I hold, I hold all those beliefs also about the actual heritage element of it. But for me, I'm on a more personal level. Theatres and cinemas are really important to me. Um, as a more memorable mm. level for heritage sort of um, reasons, if that sort of makes sense. Yeah, and there was some sad news coming out of Sydney in the last week about the um, the George Street Cinema is closing down now, which at the time when it opened, it was the world's biggest cinema complex, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, that's a kind of a sad moment for, for Sydney cinema history. And it's like one of many cinemas that have been closed down over the years in that time. Yeah, I think I just have a soft spot for the arts culture. And I think that it's important that we hold that sort of heritage, even mm. if it was a colonialist era, unfortunately. Um, but it's for me, I just find they're quite important to me. Mm. Edwin? Yeah, I suppose, I suppose in Australia, I connect potentially with like, my family's home which is up in the country and it's full of it's like it's a massive garden basically with a small house so i connect with that spot because it's got flowers that i've grown up with you know uh flowers from all different parts of the world basically in one collection so i I suppose that's that's one of the places i hit I, i think also um i live in the eastern suburbs so some of the eastern hills and ranges and that foresty area, I really do connect with because I spent a lot of time growing up in it. Um, and I, you know, I, I think I also spent time growing up with it with people who appreciate, acknowledged, and and 
did teach me about the complex nature of, you know, the state of affairs in Australia. Um, internationally, I have to say probably places where I know my family are from that I'd also connect with, like Cornwall, Ireland, Scotland, like areas in, that, in those regions. Mm. I have gone over there and found a certain connection and stuff like that, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So I, I suppose it's the idea of connecting to land as well as connecting to, for me, it is a very nature-based sort of thing. I suppose. Yeah, that's lovely. I think for me, it's less of, a, less of a personal connection, but more of a sort of what I think is good for a city kind of connection. So it's a, it's a social housing complex in Amsterdam called Hetskib, and it was built in the early 20th century. And it was actually because at the time in the Netherlands, there was wide ranging slums across the city. And so it was decided that they should set up a sort of social housing system. And it's this beautiful complex where it's this really like amazing brick detailing and really expressionist. And it's really reflecting um, symbols that uh, everyone can understand and relate to. It's not a kind of uh, for want of a better word, elitist kind of design. Like there's little like birds and like symbols of postmans and all these different elements that make it feel like an everyday kind of building and symbols of everyday life. And the thing that I really love about it is A, that it's still preserved after a hundred years and it's kind of a symbol of that era. And then B, the fact that uh, there was so much craft put into a building that was for, for social housing. And that was like, you know, there's a sense of everyone is part of our society. Everyone is respected. Um, and I think that's a really beautiful image and now it's the like there is some of it is still uh social housing but there's also a sort of social housing museum to kind of continue that legacy on from that era mm-hmm. um and so for me i think that's that's a really wonderful example of um the spirit of that era and what they were really interested in doing and now that still continues today um but kind of moving on with the, the discussion i sort of bringing it back to melbourne a little bit more Something that is in relation to heritage that that really frustrates me about Melbourne is this thing called facadism. And this is going to sound like a tangent, but it's going to come back to what we were talking about before. Um, But before jumping in, do either of you know what I'm referring to when I say the term facadism? Okay, I'm just going to go with the, you know, break it down. Facade, (laughs) mask. Facade, mask. I'm imagining um, design features where you have something that's uh appears to be one thing but isn't the other like it's something else completely interestingly that's actually pretty close but not in the way that i would anticipate uh, <laughs> so yeah <laughs> you have an idea no i was just gonna say i something to do with the front of a building yeah. i don't know like okay. the mask of it so like combining those two things together you've pretty much nailed it so facadism <laughs> this is why i love this the facadism is the process essentially of where there's a heritage building and then the guts of it are stripped out and the facade, just the street facade is retained. So typically these are colonial buildings and all that stands is the street facade and then they plonk generally another building behind it and by and large a glass apartment tower on top. So if you walk through the CBD today, all the high rise apartment towers, pretty much you'll see an old like pub or cafe or something Mm -hmm. on the bottom and then a glass tower on top. And so the reason that they have this is that um, there's, there's a, some degree of heritage protection for needing to maintain the sort of quote-unquote character of the street. Um, and so the way this is done is retaining just the facade, which is, in my opinion, I think there should be more to it. I think this, you know, a facade is only one part of a building. Um, the other thing I found really interesting is that when you Google facadism and you go to the Wikipedia page, it is actually a fairly unique and Australian thing. So if you go to the Wikipedia page for facadism, you'll find that Australia is 
the pretty much the most prominently featured country that does this practice, let alone Melbourne actually has the largest section on it. And the first building and the first few buildings are actually referring to Melbourne buildings that practice facadism, which got me thinking that this implies that it's a fairly uniquely Australian thing to do, the fact that this article promotes Australia as like one of the key places for facadism. Mm -hmm. And it must reflect something about our approach to history and heritage that is different to other places. So I guess on that kind of point, what do you think this might reflect about how Australia treats heritage and history? Well, from what you've just said, the first thing that literally is coming to my mind is that it only values the show of it and not the actual value. I think in Australia we're really concerned about the appearance of things but not the substance of things. And so, you know, it's it's that telltale straight thing where, like, Australia wants to be able to wag the Australian flag on, you know, Australia Day and go, woo, we're amazing. But they're not willing to scrape back the the undersurface or anything past that first superficial layer to confront the layers, the complexity. And I mean, your analogy stands really well with facadism and buildings. It's that idea we want to keep the appearance. We want to do the minimal work to maintain it. Yeah. And we're not concerned about actually holding up the structure. We just want to have the pretty side of it. And also I see it as a highly commercial thing. It's like, Mm. you know, keep the look of the street for like tourists, but inside, you know, don't look after the structures, replace it with probably, you know, more industrial and more industrialization, more skyscrapers, more of that sort of potentially toxic chemicals and stuff like that. Like don't protect what you've already got just built on top of. And so I feel, I, I find it rather um, offensive. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. So for, for me, I see it. One reading of this is that perhaps it reflects this idea of white Australia doesn't know how to, how to deal with its own history and which is reflected through heritage. Heritage is a reflection of a, our history and how we deal with our history. Mm. And so white Australia is 200 years odd old which is incredibly young to the 60,000 years of Aboriginal history and heritage. And it's, it's, there's kind of like there's this strange way about how white Australia protects its own history. It's kind of like it's scared to let it go. And so it's kind of clinging on to just the facades of these colonial buildings. Yet at the same time, the way it protects it is so flippant and the cities are kind of constantly being renewed and rebuilt and sort of added on and augmented and it's kind of like the, we don't, Australia, what Australia doesn't really have an identity to cling on to yet. You compare it to many other cities where there's kind of a clear character and that's preserved. And obviously that things are added, but there's a sort of character that's maintained. Yet in Australian cities, it's kind of constantly evolving. So there's kind of this strange tension, tension that we don't address the white heritage with great respect, yet at the same time, we do it because white society feels like there's nothing else to cling on to. And yet amongst all of this, there's an incredible 60,000 year history, which actually could become an anchor for Australia of what is Australian identity? What is Australian culture? How do we relate to the landscape? Um, so I, I sort of, to finish off, I wanted to ask you, how, how would you like to see Indigenous culture become an anchor to how we live and shape our cities? It's a question I suppose, I don't think I can answer at all. I think it is a a situation of having to listen to First Nations and re and recenter our entire design system so they are at the heart of it. Um, I think, like I was, I was talking to uh, Professor Libby Porter in uh, from RMIT, and she talks quite a bit on this uh, at 
in the conversation if people are interested we can put links in the description uh but she was just like the whole we, we got to turn the whole system on its head and until we do that we're not going to be able to see what was <laughs> and is now being like you know has been replaced with the metropolis um attempts to include you know first nations representation or or stuff within our city such as the um oh i can't think of the name but the building at the end of on the main uh, spine of the city the yeah the william barrack building was is deeply problematic you know it was designed by someone who decided that they wanted to have an indigenous elder as the forefront they chose a picture they consulted one family but they didn't really make a wide consultation and now it's in a it's a commercial apartment building which means the person who built it who is not indigenous is profiteering off you know this this city building the city landscape um and i mean there there are so many different sides to that argument so (laughs) that's only one interpretation of it but i i think it's not a question i can answer it's it's a question that we we, we're going to need to listen a lot more (laughs) yeah I think um, it needs to come down to future building and city planning um, where we've never really, like you've just said with that example, Adwin, um, it's okay, you can go and ask one family um, and a, a white Australian can create that or whatever. Um, but when it comes down to it, the Indigenous Australians need to have more say in our city and building planning. Um, but I think that is the integral issue of what this entire term thought encompasses, um, that we don't know how to do that. And I think it's going to be like a massive trial and error period of overcoming issues, um, not realising the mistakes while trying to attempt to do good and um, including Indigenous Australians <laughs> in the decisions, because I feel like that's what we um, always lack on um, in every them. aspect in Australia. Mm. Absolutely. Well, on that point, we might wrap up our tram thoughts, but thank you both very much for your thoughts. And I think actually this leads on to an interesting discussion and point that um, we, we might actually reach out to some more people to talk more on this topic, actually, in some future, some discussions and interviews as well. Because um, I think there's a lot to unpack here and a lot to really think about moving forward about how we do develop our cities. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. And up next, we have some community service announcements. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Nara people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. 
visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter. Connection, you're stronger. Now this is where I come from. 
dream. This is where I'm going. It's about what I've seen. Welcome to the dream and welcome to my dream. Focus on my steps when I'm walking downstream. Doing pleasures only must accept the past. Respecting the old ways and making it last. Conserving our culture because it's changing so fast. We all come together because together we last. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. The Independent and Peaceful Australian Network, otherwise known as IPAN, is a national network of more than 50 members and supporting organisations that work towards putting pressure for change in the hopes of a truly independent foreign policy in Australia. IPAN, with the help of the Medical Association of Prevention of War, has recently released a media statement calling for the Australian government to stop spending billions on warfare and to instead put healthcare first. On Saturday, IPAN published a national statement calling on the government to stop investing in unjust US-led wars and to instead invest in the health and safety in its, of its own people as a priority. They are also calling the Australian government to stop funneling billions of dollars into offensive weapons, with the Australian government being one of the largest importers of US arms of both commercial and government origin in the world. Scott Morrison is aligned with the idea of, quote, taking whatever actions are necessary to protect Australia, aiding allied military bases in countries such as Iraq and Iran. The 2016 Australian Defence White Paper committed to increasing Australian defence spending to 2% GDP by 2021. Joining us today on the show, we have Annette Brownlee, Chairperson at IPAN, and Dr Sue Wareham, Director of the Medical Association of Prevention of War. Thanks for coming on the show today, Sue and Annette. So in light of IPAN's recent media statement, IPAN is calling on Australian Defence Minister Linda Reynolds to reconsider her decision to allow the rotation of US Marines to Darwin this year, after she previously decided to postpone, especially with the strict international border limits imposed by the Commonwealth due to the COVID-19 pandemic. This rotation will happen later this year, but it's still wanted to go ahead. Annette, you commented in the statement, as Australia reels from the massive social and economic impacts of the COVID-19 crisis, we call on the Morrison government to immediately halt this year's annual rotation of US soldiers through Darwin. Annette, do you think there's any chance that the government will cease the rotation of US soldiers in Darwin completely? Or is it just, uh, is it just going to be put on hold, do you think, until the pandemic is reduced? Well, from what Linda Reynolds has said, that it will go ahead later on in the year. She hasn't given a particular date, um, but we would still be calling for that um, uh, entry of US personnel to um, to not happen. I, it's very clear that um, around the um, around the world, really, in amongst the 800 <laughs> of the United States that the United States has, that there are, have been outbreaks. Um, uh, amongst their personnel. So despite the fact that she said they would um, adhere to the two weeks quarantine, um, we still think that it should not go ahead in the interests of Australians uh, in relation to uh, cross-infection or in, in introduction of infection. But obviously, as a, as a body, as a network of organisations that opposes the uh, rotation happening at all, we would like to see see the agreement uh, torn up and for that um, training not to happen at all. Definitely. And have you actually yeah. heard anything back from Linda Reynolds? 
Yeah, we did get a letter back from her um, in uh, answer, uh, and it really very little of substance in it other than to reaffirm their position. Well, that was sort of expected, I guess, but, you know, you've got to keep pushing on. Um, Dr. Yeah. Uh, Sue, um, by halting the annual rotation this year, it would be aiding the cause of a more peaceful and independent foreign policy, as you so strive to create. Um, this also creates a more peaceful global society, um, with the call by the UN for a global ceasefire by Secretary General Antonio Guterres. Um, this is great for the international community, but how do you think this, if we were able to do this, this will assist in Australia, assist Australia in its more local fight against COVID? Do you think it will make a massive difference if we stopped sort of putting our interests into, into other sectors other than health? I think it would make a, a big difference if Australia decided to focus away from warfare and onto healthcare, and if we took a really global look at these things, and you mentioned, uh, Jess, the UN Secretary-General's call for a global ceasefire, which was very, very welcome. It was welcomed by a lot of people around the globe. It was an extremely important call. And um, it would be really good if the Australian government would decide to support that with something of substance, and something of substance would be pulling back on our own military efforts at the moment. And the example of uh, the Marines come, whether they come into Darwin or not, that would be that would be a good place to start. In addition to uh, being another step towards keeping uh, COVID out of Australia, possibly it would really be an indication that Australia wants to turn away from militarism and focus on health for all the world's people, not just for ourselves, but for all the world's people. The example of the um, RIMPAC, RIM of the Pacific Exercises, is another one where Australia could say, no, we're not going to take part in these. Um, but uh, thus far, we haven't heard a decision on that particular issue either. Okay, and do you think that um, your, both of your organisations will take a step to fight that <laughs> if that um, decision is to continue that program? Yes. Um, I... Uh, I know that MAPW Medical Association for Prevention of War has written to the Minister um, stating that we believe uh, Australia should not take part in RIMPAC. In fact, the whole RIMPAC exercises themselves should not go ahead. The, a lot of people in the Hawaii, Hawaii Islands where the exercises are conducted don't want the exercises there. So um, that, would, that would be an additional strong signal um, from Australia towards the course of peace rather than military efforts, which are clearly aimed at China. Mm, definitely. Yes, um, that's something that we have also written to the minister and encourage people to to ring into her uh, offices and, and and really urge her to make an announcement because although the RIMPAC exercises have been sort of modified, is the word they use, so that there was less um, on land, uh, the um, they are going ahead and our own Defence Minister has yet to indicate or tell us whether Australia is going to participate in those. So, you know, I, I don't think that's, that's a good thing that she's withholding that information. Yeah, and I think that's, that also leads into my next sort of question about sort of human rights and freedom of speech. We, the public needs to be alert and not had knowledge of the decisions that the, our government is making. Um, I'm putting this question to both of you again. Um, do you think that not bringing our forces back home to Australia is sort of a form of a breach of human rights? 
And how severe do you think this inaction really is? Like not bringing our horses home. And for one, A, being that they are obviously over there when they should not be, and B, because we need to be putting all of our expenditures into the health of Australia at the moment. Certainly the human rights issue is an important one and it links um, clearly, clearly with the issue of transparency, which Annette has, has referred to. Um, I, I guess I'd say in response that um, military actions generally bring in a, a whole vast range of human human rights issues and this is um, and the right to health is is just one of them and the, and the fact that military actions um, everywhere impacts on, on people's right to to health and health care um, but the issue of transparency as part of that um, is a really important one too and it's a huge issue in Australia where issues around um, so-called defence and security really lack transparency in, in a big, severe way. And even the decision as to where Australian troops are sent is not made transparently, transparently, it's not open to decision. So big issues around what the Australian people are told and not told, and big issues about the impact of military activity on healthcare um, which is not discussed. Definitely. Yeah, I, I guess what comes to my mind when I think about um, the impact of, on, on, in relation to human rights is the, is the, the rights of children uh, in wars that we are in, um, in, a, in, in, a, well, in a roundabout way, we are supporting the war in Yemen where so many hundreds of thousands of children people in Yemen have been so badly affected by the war which is waged by Saudi Arabia and that Australia continues to sell arms to. Uh, IPAN is part of the, um, as is MAPW, part of the Australian Arms Con Control Coalition, coalition of organisations that um, have worked quite, um, quite hard over the last six months to highlight the uh, well, you know, the questionably illegal um, export of arms, uh, Australian arms, to Saudi Arabia that end up uh, killing people in Yemen. Yeah, definitely. And, like, I think people need to... I think it's often quite easy to forget that, yes, we... People accept may come easily to accept that, yes, we are undergoing the purchasing and selling of arms, but it's where it goes is the issue. And I think that's what a lot of people may not remember um my next question is it may be very short a very short one um do you think there are any negatives at all with withdrawing as an um as a supporter of this sort of uh, uh, <laughs> uh supporting of the us and military and weaponry at all are there any negatives yes <laughs> i think there must be positives um i guess it's it's the uh it's the thinking of most Australians still that we need the United States to protect us. Mm. Now, that, that's the biggest roadblock really to, to change because that is embedded through extensive efforts by uh, the, um, the, the, those that, that, that um, benefit from that uh, to, to, to have this belief in the Australian population that we are a vulnerable nation and we need the United States big military to protect us. Well, I think that that needs to be challenged. That narrative does. It's, I think that's embedded in a lot of people's um, minds, especially um, 
perhaps not limited to, but the older generation that is like given this sort of quite narrow skewed um, media, you know, narrative of that. Sue, did you have anything to add? Um, I didn't quite ca catch the question, this will need to be edited. Um, so the question was about whether there are any negative aspects to a alliance. Yeah. Right, yeah. Um, the, um, I'd, I'd say in answer to that question that um, overall Australia, as, as IPAN and MAPW uh, make this point quite clearly, Australia needs a more independent policy and that overall overwhelmingly would be to the benefit of Australia and the global community. One area I'll mention which some commentators raise um, is that there's a belief that if Australia were to pull back from the Alliance in any way, then we Australians would need to spend more on our own defence. But that doesn't necessarily follow because we would only need to spend more on our own defence if we wanted to keep up the same really aggressive sort of posture towards the rest of the world and in particular towards China. But if we... Um, decided to spend more on our diplomacy and more on uh, other ways of building good relationships, then it doesn't necessarily follow that we would, we would still need to have the same um, uh, ag aggressively strong military posture towards the rest of the world. Yeah, it seems that there are a lot of different roads that we can take to be able to afford to drop from this alliance, or not drop, drop from this alliance within the form of weaponry and military aid. Um, uh, Sue and both you, Sue and Annette, um, you've touched on the issue that this is a matter of priorities, um, making the statement that prioritising, um, it, it would also necessarily focus our attention in the post-COVID world um, and onto the two biggest global health threats, nuclear weapons and climate change. Um, preventative action on both is urgently needed. Um, you also spoke of the Australia's immediate priorities should be providing support for millions of people facing unemployment, homelessness and poverty um, during the national disasters of coronavirus, the climate crisis, droughts and bushfires, rather than supporting the unjust US-led wars. Um, how do you think the government should best go about, if, if you, in the perfect world where you could have some, a lot more influence on the government, um, how do you think the government should best go about focusing on any of these issues, whether they're more local or on a global scale, um, nuclear weapons, climate change or natural disasters, how do you think they should go about it? I think the first step would be for the Australian government to decide on that key issue of priorities, because before we do anything, we need to work out what are the most important things to us as a nation. So I think to actually have explicit um, declaration that health is our key priority, or at least uh, up there among the top three priorities, rather than military expenditure being, uh, and so-called defence and security being being a top priority. So I think it's a matter of explicitly stating that this is this is what we, we want as a nation. Um, and then a whole lot of other things would follow. And as you mentioned, Jess, the, the issue of prevention of, worse, um, in fact, what are worse, worse threats in the future. Um, and the two biggest ones being nuclear weapons and climate change. And if our focus is on the health, then we can't escape from addressing those things and from putting in place a whole raft of actions, which would be, well, in relation to nuclear weapons, we'd be stating that these weapons must um, 
must all be eliminated. We don't want to be so-called protected by them. And Australia could, could and should sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. And on climate change, the, the response is there. They've, um, they're pretty well known that it's basically we need to drastically cut our carbon emissions. We need to stop supporting the polluting industries. Um, and we need to fastly transition to a renewable future. So there are a whole range of things that need to be done. And uh, the answers are there. It's just a matter of the government committing to them. Definitely. Um, I will actually stop that question there, Annette. I'll get you to answer one more just because we are running out of time. Um, we spoke before about the national public inquiry into the cost and consequence in the US. Um, we were talking before about other than DFAT, this will be the first time that this inquiry is done. Would you just like to give our listeners a quick background of that and how we can get involved? Yeah, sure. Um, it's an upcoming... Um, we're in preparation for the uh, a national inquiry into the costs and consequences of um, Australia's involvement in largely US-led wars, and that then turns into a public inquiry into the uh, US-Australia alliance. So uh, I think this is just really timely. Um, more and more people are looking at just what this is costing us and what consequences there are for everyday Australians in this uh, ultra-close, sycophantic relationship with the United States, but we just don't question anything. It affects us economically. It affects us in our relationships with our neighbouring countries. It affects us in our ability to negotiate and have the benefits of working with people around the world, whether it's working with China on COVID or the whole international community on climate change. These are some of the areas that are impacted by us so blindly sticking with the United States, whether it's at the United Nations or whatever. So what we aim to do is to have um, uh, news of the inquiry um, out there in the next couple of months, and we'll be encouraging people, individuals, organisations to put in submissions about their own situation in relation to this close relationship that we have with the United States. So, you know, anything from people um, who are being denied adequate funding for domestic violence refuges through to um, returning troops coming back to Australia from these wars with PTSD, wars that we should never have been involved in. And, you know, we're living with the consequences for those people as well. So more news will be coming about this uh, inquiry in the next couple of months. Great. Thank you so much for that update. Um, we'll definitely put that in the link when, once we've done the rundown for this show um, so our viewers can get more information on that. But thank you both for joining us on the show today.